way out. As Wayne said, uh, my name is Morris Proctor. My friends call me Mo, and, and it's always an honor and privilege to uh, pinch hit for Michael. He is uh, away and out of town officiating a wedding this weekend, so it's good to uh, stand in for him. We're going to be in the Word in just a moment, but I wanted to start off with just a very, very brief personal word. Um, Stone Bridges have been my home now for uh, a while. My sister and brother-in-law have been uh, attending here longer than I, but I uh, just appreciate your opening your uh, hearts to me. Uh, back in the summer, my wife was tragically killed in an automobile accident, and I just wanted to say thank you for your uh, love, your hugs when you see me. Numerous ones of you have sent me cards and uh, emails, and um, I just want to say thank you. And it's about all I can say right now, but uh, I appreciate your love and your support. Okay, let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning in the name of Jesus. You are our Lord, you are our Savior, and we are grateful that you have revealed your will to us in your word. And Father, our prayer this morning is that you would open our eyes so that we can behold wonderful things from your word. Not so that we can get smarter, but Lord, so that we can be changed. Our prayer is that you would use this morning to further conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. You know, it's been said that most conflict in most relationships can be boiled down to one question. Who's in charge here? Whose will is going to prevail? Now, we're seeing that on the global stage right now between Russia and Ukraine. We see it on the national front every day between conservatives and progressives. We see it in the family between parents and teenagers. We see it in the workplace between employers and employees or even among coworkers. Who's in charge here? But all those relationships, all that conflict, we'll just save for other days. Today, we're going for the big relationship. When it comes to our personal relationship with God, Who's in charge? When we heed Michael's admonition that he's always giving us, keep your nose in the book. The book is the Word of God. As we are in the Word of God, we are going to learn the will of God. And when the will of God conflicts with our will, who's in charge? When God says go this way, but we want to go that way, who's in charge? When God says, think this, but we want to think that, who's in charge? That's the question on the table this morning. When it comes to our personal relationship with God through Christ, who is in charge? Whose will is going to prevail? That's the question, and hopefully we will arrive at an answer today. And so I want you to turn or tap to Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter number 26. We're going to be reading Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane, and we're going to get there in a moment, but I want to 
take my time for a few minutes here and set things up. You need to know what preceded the events in Gethsemane. Now, if you are new to the Bible, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Matthew, along with Mark and Luke and John, were followers of Jesus, and they each wrote an account of Jesus' life, and we call these the gospel accounts. And sometimes each of these gospel accounts will have the same event like the one we're going to be reading about. And so when we read the event in different gospels, then we can pick up little details that maybe the other one didn't emphasize. So as we go through this, we're going to camp out in Matthew, but I'm going to be pulling in details from the other gospel writers so that we can have the complete picture in stereo, if you will. And so we're going to be following the traditional church calendar or the Christian calendar. Traditional church calendar said Jesus is crucified on Friday, Good Friday. Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane is the night before on Thursday. Now, during the day on Thursday, Jesus sent out a couple of his disciples, and he said, I want you to go and prepare in the upper room the Passover so that I can celebrate the meal with you. And so the disciples did. So it's now Thursday evening. Jesus and his buddies are in the upper room. It's a house in Jerusalem, if you will. And a lot of things start happening. During the Passover meal, Jesus instituted what we call the Lord's Supper. He picked up bread and he said, this is my body. He picked up a cup and he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is going to be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And then the disciples during the meal started arguing with one another, who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus, hearing their argument, begins to wash their feet. But John says, before he washed their feet, he made this comment. John said, Jesus, knowing that the hour had come for him to depart from this world and return to the Father, then got up and washed their feet. And then Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. The Son of Man is going to go as it has been written about him, but woe to the one who betrays me. It would be better for him had he never been born. And then Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again to receive you. So where I am, you can be also. And then Jesus said, I'm not going to talk a lot more right now because look, the ruler of the world is coming. But listen, he has nothing in me. And then they sang a hymn and left the upper room. Everything I just described took place in that upper room. Now they leave the upper room and they start descending through Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem is on a hill. They're going downhill. On the eastern side of the city, of course, there's a wall. There's a big gate. So they go out of the gate on the eastern side. And then they are making their way downhill through what we call the Kidron Valley or the Kidron Ravine. So down in the valley, and then they start up the slope on the other side for the Mount of Olives. And we're going to get there in just a moment. That's where we have the Garden of Gethsemane. But before they get there, Jesus is talking. They've left the upper room. They're walking, and he is doing a lot of talking. And he says, hey, you need to know all of you are going to fall away from me. But I want you to know, after I have been raised, 
I'm going to meet you in Galilee. And he said in John 15, no man has a greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends. Jesus said, I know you're grieved because I'm talking about going away. He said, but you need to understand it's actually for your advantage that I go away because when I go away, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who's going to be in you and guide you and teach you. And Jesus said, in a little while, you're not going to see me and you're going to be very sad. But in a little while, after the little while, you're going to see me again and oh, you're going to have joy. And then we get to John 17, which we call the high priestly prayer. And Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. All of that happened before we get to Gethsemane. Now, the reason I went through all of that is because I'm making a big point here. Did you see how many times Jesus talked about his death? And then he said, I'm going to be raised. And I'm going to go back to the Father. And I'm even coming again for you. Jesus was totally aware of everything that was going to happen that night. He said, the ruler of the world is coming. Jesus knew what was going to happen tomorrow. But as he spoke of this, before he gets to Gethsemane, he speaks of it, but he's calm, he's cool, he's collected. Is he somber? Yes. Is he serious? Oh, yes. But he's calm, cool, collected. But now they get to Gethsemane. But now things are about to change. But now things are going to take a dramatic turn. So they go through the eastern gate, down into Kidron Valley, start making their way up the Mount of Olives on the other side, and they come to a garden called Gethsemane. Gethsemane literally means oil press. And it's not like a garden we would think of with a lot of flowers. It was a grove of olive trees. And perhaps it had a wall around it with an entrance. And perhaps it was owned by a friend who allowed them to use it as a mini retreat because Scripture said Jesus would often go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray and he would bring his followers with him. You see, the Garden of Gethsemane was like that little mini retreat close to Jerusalem, but just far enough outside of the hustle and bustle of city life so that Jesus could be alone with his father. This was a habit. In fact, in a little while, Judas is going to show up and betray him. Judas knew exactly where to find him because Jesus is praying here every night. So they come to the Garden of Gethsemane. So with all of that as background, follow along in your Bible on the screen as I read. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. 
And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Now, as we go through this passage, remember the question on the table. Who's in charge here? And it's going to be very simple. The first part, I'm simply going to give you a portrait of Jesus' prayer. I want to take us through Gethsemane because, in my humble opinion, I think this is one of the most misunderstood events in the life of our Lord. And then after we fully understand what's going on, as best we can understand what's going on in Gethsemane, then we're going to draw some principles or applications for our own prayer life. But let's begin with a portrait or a picture of Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. Now, keep in mind, they've made their way up to Gethsemane. Now, he says to his disciples, perhaps at the entrance of the garden, you stay here. There are eight of them that he leaves at the entrance. Remember, Judas has already gone away. And then he brings Peter, James, and John with him, and they go a little bit deeper into the garden. Now, why did he bring these three? We refer to them as his inner circle. If you read the Gospels carefully, several times Jesus would pull these guys in. Most notably, when Jesus was on the mountain of what we call transfiguration, he had them there. They saw him on the mountain of glory. Now they're getting ready to see him in the valley of agony. So he brings Peter, James, and John with him. So you've got the eight at the entrance. Jesus and the three go a little deeper in the garden. And now watch what happens. Verse 37. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Please underscore the word began. When Jesus got deeper in the garden... Something started that had not been there in the previous hours. He began. It started when he was in the garden. Please underscore that. This is huge. He began. Now, let's take a look at his emotions. He began to be grieved. This word simply refers to emotional and mental anguish. He began to be grieved and distressed. The same word distress is translated over in Mark as troubled. And the idea is we're out of our comfort zone. He is out of a place of familiarity. We're getting ready to see Jesus as we have never seen him before. Not just the hours prior to Gethsemane. We've never seen Jesus in his entire life the way we are about to see him. Then he said to them, that's the three, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. 
deeply grieved is simply an intensive form of the word he just used. It's the idea of being in a lake and the water is all around. Jesus said, if I look up, there's grief. If I look to the left or to the right, if I look down, there is grief. I am surrounded by grief, sorrow, anguish to the point of death. Jesus said, humanly speaking, right now, I think I'm going to die. The only escape I see from this grief is death. This grief is leading to the end result of death. And then he says to the three, you stay here and keep alert and watch with me and I'm going to go over here and pray. And Luke says he withdrew about a stone's throw, 20, 30 yards away. So we've got the eight at the entrance. We've got three disciples. Then we've got Jesus over here by himself. But do you see his emotions? Anguish, grief, thinking he's going to die. And Dr. Luke adds, an angel came and strengthened him. And we can surmise if that angel had not shown up and strengthened him, perhaps he would have died right there in the garden. And Dr. Luke also adds that when Jesus was praying, the prayers, the anguish was so intense that he swept blood. His blood vessels, his capillaries burst underneath the skin and blood poured forth from his pores. We've never seen Jesus like this. The calm, cool, collected one that we just saw is now in deep anguish. Now let's look at his body. We see his emotions. Let's look at his body. Look at verse 39. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed. Matthew says he fell on his face. Mark says he fell down to the ground. Luke says he knelt. And if we look under the hood at the grammar, the idea of these verbs is it kept happening over and over. It makes all the sense in the world. Jesus is in the garden and suddenly Something hits him that he's never known before, and it drops him to his knees. But even his knees could not support the pain, and he fell to his face. But the pain, the grief was so great, he's back up to his knees. He stands back up, and then he's pushed back to the ground. This is not Jesus just simply kneeling underneath the tree and praying one prayer and getting up and walking out of the garden. And what about the prayers? Now, we've got to go over to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears. Most Bible scholars believe that Hebrews is referring to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I do as well. If that is true, which I believe it is, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is crying. He's screaming. He's shouting. His body is down. His body is up. It's down. He, I'm going to die. Blood is coming forth from his pores. The angel is there strengthening him to keep him in the battle. 
We've never, ever seen Jesus like this. The calm, cool, collected one that we just saw is now in this kind of anguish and turmoil. What possibly could have caused this? Jesus tells us. Notice what he prays in verse 39. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And later on, he said, Father, if it is not possible for this to pass from me unless I drink it in full, your will be done. What caused what we just saw in Jesus? This cup is what caused it. Father, if possible, let this cup pass away. Nevertheless, not my will, yours be done. This cup is the key to unlocking the mystery of Gethsemane. So we've got to just camp out here for just a little bit. So let's talk about the word cup. Cup, obviously, is a drinking vessel. And then it referred to the contents that goes into the vessel. And it referred, it was sort of like an idiom or figure of speech that referred to one's lot in life. This is the cup that I've got to drink. But then it took on a very specialized meaning. The cup took on the meaning of God's wrath, God's anger, God's fury. The Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the book of Revelation, they all speak of the cup of God's wrath or anger or fury. That's what's happening right here. The cup. Now, I want you to understand something. What is causing this pain in Jesus is not what the Romans are going to do to Jesus tomorrow. It's what the Father is going to do to Jesus. Now, I want to be careful with my words here because I am not minimizing the physical torture and pain of crucifixion. But please underscore that crucifixion was Rome's method of capital punishment. Jesus is not the only person who was ever crucified. In fact, the day Jesus was crucified, he had thieves on either side. Rome crucified people all the time. And many of them would go silently. Jesus is not pulling back from, quote, physical torture. Not what Rome would do to him. It's what the Father would do to him. Now, here's a very interesting passage. After the Garden of Gethsemane, over in John chapter 18, Judas and the soldiers show up to arrest Jesus. And Peter pulls out his sword. And he takes aim at a head and he misses and he catches a soldier's ear. And Jesus heals the soldier's ear and he tells Peter, put your sword up. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me to drink? The cup is not coming from Rome. The cup is coming from the Father. That's what's going on. So we have to understand, what is the Father doing to Jesus? All right, I'm going to be brief here, but this we have to understand. You see, I don't think we appreciate the intensity of Gethsemane because we don't understand the severity 
of the crucifixion at Golgotha. We say Jesus died for our sins, and that is true. But do we really know what that means? Do we really understand that? So very quickly, the Bible teaches that God exists, and God is holy. He is unique, completely pure, completely righteous, and God creates us. And one of the reasons God creates us is to know him and enjoy him forever. In John 17, Jesus said, Father, this is eternal life that they may know you and the one that you have sent. God wants us to be in intimacy and enjoy his fellowship. But the Bible also says God is holy and without holiness we can't see God. We can't have this eternal life unless we're holy. Well, that creates a problem because you and I definitely aren't holy. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Paul told the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, when Jesus comes back, he's going to hand out retribution to those who don't know God, who have not obeyed the gospel. And he says, here's the penalty. They're going to pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Now, that makes all the sense in the world. Eternal life is knowing the Father intimately. Eternal death is being separated from him. And that's what we have to look forward to unless this penalty can be paid for. Well, God is not only holy, God is also loving. The most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God is giving Jesus to deal with our sin problem so that we can have eternal life knowing God intimately. So what does it take to deal with our sin problem? All of the ramifications of sin have to be paid for. Romans tells us that God is a just God. He wants to justify us, but he's not a codependent grandpa. He can't just look the other way and wink at sin. It's got to be dealt with. Enter Jesus to deal with that. Now watch this. I've already alluded to the fact earlier Jesus told them, the ruler of this world is coming, but listen, he has nothing in me. He has nothing in me. No sin whatsoever is in me. Yet Peter says in 1 Peter 2.28, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. Jesus, he has nothing in me, is going to take on your and my sins in his body. Paul said, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus said, I always do the things that please the Father. But Isaiah said, it pleased the Father to crush him and to put him to grief for our iniquities. Even the Father said of Jesus, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. But Paul told the Galatians, Jesus is going to become a curse to redeem us. Not be cursed, become a curse. Jesus said, my father and I are one. We've always known intimacy. And yet the father is asking Jesus to be separated from him to pay sin's penalty. That's why Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? 
Do you see what's in the cup? Here's the cup. The Father is asking His sinless, holy, obedient Son to stand in the place of sinful people and bear all of their sin, all of their guilt, all of the eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord to absorb all of that. It's not what Rome was going to do to Jesus. It's what the Father is going to do to Jesus. But watch this. That's tomorrow. That's Friday. That's Golgotha. We're still on Thursday night. We're still in Gethsemane. It's the second word. This cup. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, put your English grammar hats back on for a moment from high school. This, both in English and Greek, is what we call a near demonstrative pronoun. And it stands in opposition to a far demonstrative pronoun, that. That refers to over there. This refers to right here. When we're talking about that, that's over there. When we're talking about this, oh, it's right here. Jesus didn't pray let that cup, he prayed, let this cup pass from me. Now, I want you to listen to me very carefully because I don't want you to misunderstand me and start firing up the grill outside and burn me at the stake afterwards, okay? I'm not a heretic. I'm not a blasphemer. So listen very carefully. Jesus suffered for our sins and paid the full payment of our sins on the cross at Golgotha on Friday. Completely, totally, 100%, our sins were paid for on the cross by Jesus on Friday, tomorrow. Are you with me? Okay. Keep that in mind. So regardless of whatever else I'm about to say, Keep that in mind. But Jesus is in the garden on Thursday, and he's praying, Father, let this cup pass from me. Somehow, some way, this is mystery. This is holy ground. We probably all ought to take off our shoes right here because this is mystery indeed. Somehow, some way, God pulled back the veil of what's going to happen at Golgotha tomorrow and let Jesus experientially see it. Jesus saw in Gethsemane on Thursday night the horror, the severity, the spiritual pain, the spiritual anguish that was waiting for him tomorrow on Friday. He saw it on Thursday night. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not your will, but mine be done. All right, look at those prayers. Father, if it is possible, let this cup 
pass from me. If there is any way possible, Father, to save humanity without my being separated from you, without my becoming sin, without my becoming a curse, that's really my will. But Father, I'm not in charge. You're in charge. Your will be done. Father, if there's any way possible to save people apart from this cup, but if I have to drink it in full, you're in charge. Your will be done. That's the only explanation that it can account for Jesus' emotions, his body, his crying, his anguish, his tears. Now I want you to listen to me. Have you ever experienced anything in life and after it was over you said, boy, if I knew it was going to be that bad, I never would have done it. We all have. Watch this. Jesus knew how bad it was going to be. And he did it anyway. Because it was the Father's will. Nothing, I mean nothing, could call Jesus to rise up from his submissive, obedient state to the Father and say, Father, I've always obeyed you, but not this time. You're asking too much. I can't do it. No. Father, not my will. Your will be done. I just want to say just a parenthetical thought here before we go to the application. I'm concerned sometimes that we in the Bible church get a little too heady and a little too intellectual. And I'm at the top of the list, okay? I'm the one who's sitting around here talking about near and far demonstrative pronouns, okay? I'm with you. But see, if we're not careful, we're going to look in the Garden of Gethsemane and we're going to see a doctrine praying. We're going to see a creed praying. We're going to see a philosophy of life praying. When you look in the Garden of Gethsemane, I want you to see a man praying. A flesh and blood, 100% human being praying. He is flesh and blood like we are. He is our brother. Yes, he is the God-man, but he is human. And he is in the garden praying. A Jewish man with dark skin, dark hair, dark eyes, calloused hands. A man is in the garden praying. Not a doctrine. Not a creed. A man saying, not my will. Your will be done. Do you realize the only thing standing between us and eternal separation from the Father is that man praying? If for one iota of a moment, that man would have said, not this time. We have no hope. I want you to know that man, knowing full well what was going to happen to him tomorrow, said, not my will. You're in charge.
Nothing could make him assert himself over the Father. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, even though he was a son, he learned obedience. He learned submission through the things he suffered. And having been perfected, having been made complete, having passed all the tests, the writer says, he became the source of eternal salvation. Because that man, because your brother, because my brother paid, prayed that prayer and submitted to the Father and then walked it out tomorrow in Golgotha, we have the opportunity of eternal life with the Father. That's what's going on in Gethsemane. Now, let's take a look at some principles or application for our prayer life. And before we do this, and we're going to move through these pretty quickly, but before we do this, I want you to understand that Jesus' prayer experience in Gethsemane is unique to him. The Father was asking his Holy Son to bear the sins of the world. God is not asking us to do that. Okay? God is taking a Holy Son and saying, I want to punish you for sin. He is not asking. He's dealing with us, and we're unholy, and he's trying to get us to be holy. We're disobedient, and he's trying to get us obedient. It's the flip-flop. Okay? So Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane is unique to him. But there are some applications for us. In fact, I think that's one of the reasons he took Peter, James, and John in there deeper in the garden with him. And he said, keep watch, keep alert with me so you don't fall into temptation. Spirit's willing, flesh is weak. So he's wanting them to learn through this prayer time. And that's what we're about to do right here. Okay, several principles related to our prayer life. First of all, the purpose of prayer. To submit ourselves to a holy and sovereign God. Now, I'm going to be the first one to tell you, there is a whole lot more about prayer that I don't understand than I do understand. You could take what I know about prayer and put it in a thimble, okay? But here's one thing I do know. The primary purpose of prayer is to submit ourselves to a holy and sovereign God. Not the only purpose, the primary purpose purpose. That's what we see Jesus doing in prayer, submitting himself to the Father's will. Earlier, the disciples had come to Jesus and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Jesus said, okay, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Most of us know it by heart, but let's really slow it down here. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, holy, unique, set apart, one of a kind is your name, your essence, your character, your kingdom, your rule, your sovereignty, your reign come. Your will, your desires, your plans, your purposes, your will be done. Watch this. On earth. In my life. In my family's life. In my business. In my worldview. In my politics. In my entertainment. In my finances. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. You see, the Lord's Prayer was not given by Jesus to be a nice little thing that we just recite. It's not just to be a nice prayer in the locker room before you go out and play a sporting event. It's life-changing. The primary purpose of prayer, Jesus led with it, is to submit ourselves to a holy and sovereign God. You see, this is the way it works. Michael always admonishes us, as we talked about before, keep your nose in the book. The book is the Word of God. As we're in the Word of God, God is going to reveal the will of God to us. And He's going to reveal His will about all kinds of things. As I've said, our leisure, our finances, our worldview, all sorts of things. Now, here's the deal. Sometimes when He's revealing His will, we say, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, I'm right there with you. Sometimes when we're in the book, we're going to see the will of God and we're going to say, Oh, God is saying this, but I want to do that. And there is a collision. When our wills collide with God's will, who's in charge? Oh, this is crazy practical. We're talking finances. We're talking relationships. We're talking politics. We're talking government. We're talking worldview. This is very practical. When we're in the Word of God and see the will of God and it collides with our will, who's in charge? That's where the rubber meets the road. I think Jesus said something like, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? Okay? The purpose of prayer is to order ourselves and bring our will in submission to the Father's will. The next principle I want to mention is the privacy. Get alone with God. Jesus, as we've already discovered, would often go to Gethsemane to be alone with God. He's alone with God here. One of my favorite verses about Jesus' prayer life is back in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. When you have time, go read Isaiah chapter 50. It's a prophecy about Jesus. But one of the verses, 50, verse 4, says, Morning by morning, the Father awakens me to listen with the ear of a disciple, and I was not disobedient. Is that not the most wonderful thing? Morning by morning, the Father would shake his son and say, It's time to get up. Let's come away. I've got some things you need to learn. I've got some things you need to hear. I've got some things I need to tell you. And Jesus said, I wasn't disobedient. And then you put that with a New Testament verse like Mark chapter 1, verse 35, which says, early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus would arise and go away to pray. And then you read through the Gospels, and Jesus was always saying stuff like this. The things you hear me saying, I first heard from the Father. The things you see me doing, I first saw it with the Father. When did he hear it? When did he see it? Oh, that was in his prayer time with the Father. And he wasn't disobedient. Gethsemane was not unique in the sense of this is the first time Jesus got alone to pray. He was always getting alone to pray. What I'm saying is this. Pray with your spouse. Pray with your kids. Pray in small groups. Pray in public. Don't stop any of that. But the kind of prayer that we're looking at this morning is just you and the Father.
That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, when you pray, go into the inner closet and shut the door. And pray in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Because we're about to see the kind of praying that we're talking about, trust me, you don't want anyone else to hear or see. Because it's getting ready to get messy. When you are on a collision course with God's will, get alone with Him a lot. And that leads us to the next principle, which I'm going to call the pain principle. Expect to wrestle in prayer with God. Now, I started to call this something else. I said, nope, I'm staying with pain. As we look at Gethsemane, Jesus was in agony. In fact, Luke uses that word, agony, and the word agony is the Greek word agonia, which refers to wrestling. There was a wrestling match going on in the Garden of Gethsemane. Reminds me of Jacob in the Old Testament when it says Jacob wrestled with God. Listen, there are going to be times that you and I are going to be wrestling with God. Because you see clearly God's will and you also see clearly your will. And let me tell you something about our will. I, I don't have time to fully develop this, but... When we got saved, we are born again. We are regenerated. We're born from above. We're born of the Word. We're born of the Spirit. You have a new regenerated spirit living in that body. And this is where the Lord takes up residence. But watch this. This new regenerated spirit is living in an old body. Paul said to the Galatians, Galatians 5, 16, following, he said, listen, I'm telling you, walk according to the Control and influence of the Holy Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh because the desires of the flesh are in opposition to the desires of the Spirit and you don't do what you want to do. See, there's wrestling going on. You see, we have to understand something. You and I have been thinking the way we think for a long time. We've been acting the way we act for a long time. And now, as believers, we're in the book and we see the will of God and the will of God is suddenly in conflict with the way we've been thinking and acting for a long time. Do you think our flesh is just going to roll over and play dead? No. It's not going to happen. There's going to be conflict. Listen, I'm not saying every day I'm not saying every week, not even every month. I'm just saying at times, and we can put in whatever that means, at times, when you and I walk out of our prayer closet, we ought to look like we just went three or four rounds with Rocky. There is pain in the kind of prayer we're talking about because you are submitting your strong will to the will of God. Now think about this. Let's say that we were at the entrance of the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus walked out and was arrested. He walked out of Gethsemane. What did he look like? He just had the kind of prayer that we're talking about. What did he look like when he walked out of the garden? 
tell you what he looked like. He was covered in blood, sweat, and tears. Luke said he sweat blood. Hebrews says he cried, shouted. Jesus had been through the ringer. There ought to be times that we walk out of our prayer closet. We're just a mess. But not my will. Your will be done. Next principle is the posture principle. Let's put our bodies in a submissive, humble position. Now, we saw that Jesus was kneeling. He was on the ground. He was face down. He was back up. Now, I can make a pretty good case that that was, quote, involuntary, that the pain pushed him down. Okay, we could say that. But we know other places Jesus knelt, lifted up his eyes, and so on. His body was involved in prayer is what I'm saying. All throughout Scripture... The scripture talks about the body in worship and prayer. The scripture talks about lifting hands, clapping hands, lifting our eyes, bowing our heads, kneeling, and the like. We see Jesus on his face. We see Jesus kneeling. We have admonitions elsewhere in scripture to do likewise. Here's what I'm suggesting for us. When we're dealing with this kind of prayer, where it's our will and God's will, and it's a battle, here's what I'm suggesting. You're alone. It's just you. Nobody's around. If you are physically able, put your body in a humble position. Kneel before the Lord. Lay flat out on your carpet or on the grass at the park, wherever you are, face down. Here's what I've discovered. It's much more difficult to say to a sovereign God, my will when I'm kneeling in front of him or when I'm on my face in front of him. The kind of prayer we're talking about is not the prayer we do at the kitchen table. This is real serious stuff here. Put your body in a submissive, humble position. And then I'm going to encourage you to persevere. Stay in prayer until submission is realized. Every time I read about Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane, I always ask myself this question, and I still don't know the answer. Why did Jesus have to pray this prayer three times? Think about it. This is Jesus. This is the one who said, I always do the things that please the Father. This is the one who said, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. Jesus was always bent toward the Father's will. So we come to Gethsemane. Why did he have to pray this three times? I don't know. But I'm glad he did. Because I don't know about you. Because sometimes to submit my will to the Father's will... One time is not enough. Three times are not enough. We're talking 25, 30, 50 times. Persevere. The kind of prayer we're talking about where our hard, crusty, stubborn will is going to be brought into submission to a holy and sovereign God, normally that's going to require some perseverance. 
just real quickly, we have another example of this over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 says, I was caught up to the third heaven and I saw things and I heard things. I was given great revelation. And he said, because of the surpassing greatness of my revelations that were, I was privileged to experience, I was given a thorn in the flesh a messenger of Satan to torment me lest I would exalt myself. And he said, three seasons of prayer, I implored the Lord, take it away. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient. See it? Paul said, take it away. The Lord said, it's going to stay. Take it away. No, it's going to stay. Take it away. No, it's going to stay. My grace is sufficient. Paul said, therefore, I will rejoice in my weakness so that the power of Christ can dwell in me. not always easy to bring our stubborn will into submission. Pray through the pain. And then finally, the preparation principle. Pray in private so you can prevail in public. This goes back to what Jesus told the disciples. He said, listen, keep watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Earlier in the evening, Jesus said, you're going to fall away, all of you. And they said, no, 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 we never will. Even if we have to die, we never will. Good intentions, your spirit's willing. The soldiers came and they fled. Flesh is weak. Humanly speaking, have you ever thought about this? Sometime during this Easter season, Read the accounts of the Garden of Gethsemane and read the accounts of the crucifixion. Just humanly speaking, just on the surface, which seems more agonizing? Now that you understand what's going on in Gethsemane, just humanly speaking, on the surface, which seems more agonizing? I don't know about you, a whole lot more descriptive terms are used to describe Jesus in Gethsemane than they are on Golgotha. It's almost, not, and again, don't burn me at the stake, it's almost that Golgotha was anticlimactic compared to the intensity. Why is that? Because the decision had been made in Gethsemane. The battle was won in private, in the garden. And then he walked it out. That's the principle for us. When our wills are colliding with God, that battle is won in prayer. If you and I wait to get in the, to the public battle, the flesh is going to cave. If you and I say, listen, I know my will and God's will are in conflict, but when the occasion arises, then I'll, I'll deal with it at that point. No, we're going to fail just like the disciples did. We win the battle in prayer in private, and then we get up and we walk out and we live it out. That's the preparation. So here's the deal, very simple. 
Let's keep our noses in the book, the Word of God. As we're in the Word of God, we're going to learn the will of God. When our will and God's will are on a collision course, who is in charge? We bring ourselves into submission through that private, painful, intensive prayer. And then we get up and we live it out. Father, thank you for giving us this intimate, personal look at our Savior. Thank you that we see him so vulnerable and yet so committed to your will. Father, by your Holy Spirit, I pray that you will empower us, strengthen us, to walk in obedience and submission to your will. I pray that we will be people of the word, people learning, sensing, knowing your will. But Lord, I pray that we will be people living by the book, living according to your will. Lord, seal this word in us and bring forth great fruit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.